0: Welcome to the Haunted Ride. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Haunted Ride. I'm your host, Melissa Cummins, and thank you for joining me today. So, I hope you guys have your tea and your snacks, and I hope you're having a good day. I'm excited that we have our third true crime episode. Um, I like these. I'm not gonna lie, the last couple of months have been kind of hard. Um, I now officially believe in Mercury Retrograde, or that at least enough people do that somehow it affects everyone, whether you believe in it or not. And it's it's been a really, really rough couple of months. It's gotten worse since um, Mercury Retrograde started. So I've actually been having a tough time with true crime because um, I've been so overwhelmed and overworked and just having such a difficult time that I, I've been, um, not feeling too well and I haven't been sleeping well. And it's gotten to a point where it's really hard for me to listen to true crime. So while I know this case and I was really excited to do this case and I still am excited, um, I haven't been able to listen to my true crime podcast. I I can't listen to what happened. And Doing this episode actually was really hard for me. And I'm actually sort of happy that I don't do this, like, every week. Like, I do the rest of the paranormal stories because I I don't typically think about how negative true crime is. Like, unless the person was caught, there's, that's the only bit of positive justice in the whole thing. But if they weren't caught or... There's questions, or even even just at the core of the fact it was a crime, it's a negative thing. So I hope, anyone who listens to this, I hope that you take care of yourself, and that you are in a positive place, and I just, I really want that for you so strongly. So, without further ado, let's get into the case of Darlie Routier. So my sources for this are actually Investigation Discovery. I'm not going to lie. A lot of the information was taken from Investigation Discovery because I feel like until Investigation Discovery did the show, people, there was like a little blanket of like information. But apart from that, people kind of forgot about it and left it alone and didn't care. And I also think that Investigation Discovery is the only place that had all of the information, meaning all of it without trying to pass complete and utter judgment. And you could tell, like, you could tell when they were passing judgment, like, you could see it, but they did give the opportunity to both sides and all sides to be able to share their story. And I can give them kudos for that, versus just going, yes, she did it, or yes, she didn't do it. Because to be honest with you, I don't know. And I hope that when I present this, maybe you guys know after or maybe I'll know. I have no idea. But it was Investigation Discovery, Dallas News, and ThoughtCo- or ThoughtfulCo. So getting into it, I'm I'm gonna do it a little differently than how I normally do. Just because one, this is how it was presented in the show. And I actually really like that because it- the show, which I'll- I'll post a link to where I was able to watch it for free um, on the website. But it starts off very bluntly with- this is what happened. This is how it happened. Now let's get to why. Like, and so they focus the majority of the show on her trial. So, which I think is important. So there's not a lot of information about Darley's early life and all this stuff that normally investigation discovery or articles really have. They do talk about how she's a fun, loving, joyful person. That's what everyone says. So I'm just going to kind of leave that out there and leave that be. And we'll just get into this first. So on june 6th 1996 the police get a phone call early in the morning like super early still dark outside and um darlie routier is the one who's making the phone call she says she she now even in the actual investigation discovery show there's different accounts so i'm not sure exactly which one she said but I'm going to take the one she does say in episode two, which was that she felt Damon, her son, she has three kids, Damon, Devin, and Derek. Derek is the baby. And so is Starley and then her husband, Darren. Lots of D's in the family. So she says that she felt Damon pushing on her shoulder. When she woke up, she was really disoriented, which is odd because, I mean, when you wake up, You can be groggy, but to be disoriented sort of sounds like you took something or you had something in you that kind of makes you a little hazy. And she says that's when she saw the outline of a man. She then kind of doesn't really go into the whole fight part, but it is said that Darley at some point in the case said that she says she fought this attacker off and in fighting them, they ran away from her. They ran through the kitchen um, there was a crash in the kitchen, She's, um, and there was a knife that they dropped. She picks up the knife on Instinct, which was right outside of their utility room, and she chases the guy basically down until he goes through the utility room and what seems to be outside of the garage. When she turns back around to kind of be like, basically, are my kids okay? She sees Devin laying on his stomach on the ground. And she doesn't see him moving. So she calls the police and she's basically screaming at them like, you need to come over here. You need to like my, my, she, she says multiple times in the call, which investigation discovery does play quite a bit of this call. She says multiple times, oh my God, they killed my boys. My boys are dead. Like she said, like she is, she seems to be in a full thought process that her boys are dead. Now, during this whole time, apparently nobody ever tells her that her ass is wounded too. She's got a gash on her neck and her elbow and some gashes on her fingers. So as she's screaming on the phone and so on and so forth, her husband, uh, who was upstairs with the baby, comes running down and is hearing her screaming. He starts doing CPR on... Devin um, and while this is going on, the four year old which was Devon, I believe, was pronounced dead on arrival um so the police come, everybody comes um she's obviously very upset. they wheel her out a a woman from across the street is the person who calls someone her family and basically tells them verbatim, Devin and Damon were dead, Darlie may be dead too. Like, that is a family member recalling back what this woman told them. And I cannot, like, if someone was to tell me that, that two people in my family died, and a third one might be dead too, like, that is so heartbreaking. It is so heartbreaking to hear. So, Darlie was rushed into surgery. Um, as I said before, she had a, gas on her, a gash on her arm that cut to the bone. The slash on her throat, which very narrowly missed her carotid artery. And she kept saying, like, how could they kill them? How could they kill them like this? She was willed into surgery. They had, sur- they did surgery on her wounds. And um, when she came out of surgery, she was stable, but she was put in ICU because she had lost a lot of blood. And the nurses were apparently told basically, like, hey, we don't know. Like, you got to watch over this person. Like, we don't know if they're going to come back to try to finish her off. Like, we don't we don't know what's going on. Right. So coming out of this, bo- both both boys did die. Both Devin and Damon died. Um, Darlie did not. Uh, during the funeral, they had to hold Darlie so she wouldn't fall to the ground. Um, And when she was in the hospital... She kept touching the boys' pictures and she'd just cry, why God, why my boys? So these are these are quotes that she said. When they buried the boys, they buried them together. And the the little thing that they had written was they walked through life together, now they'll walk through heaven together. Which is so sad. And as a tribute to the boys, they released balloons um, in their honor. Now, the sad part is One of their boys' birthdays was a couple days before this, so they had already sent out invitations, they'd already, like, sent out everything, and kids had bought the boys' gifts, and now there's no one to give them to. So they went ahead and they had the birthday party, but they had it at the kids' graveyard, where where they were buried, which is... That's really hard to picture, because... And we'll come back to this in a second, but this is a large part of the case. The fact that she had this this birthday party at their graveyard, at their gravesite. Um, a lot of people had a problem with it. And while it's weird to me, I do think it's weird to have a, have a birthday at a graveyard. If my grandmother, who I love more than anything in the world, was buried at a graveyard, you can bet your ass on her birthday I had to go bring her flowers. Right now on her birthday we bring her flowers. So... Isn't that like having a birthday party? Isn't that like, I sit down and I toss her a picture. Isn't that like having a birthday party? Yeah, maybe I don't have a whole bunch of people with me. And that's what makes it seem a little weird is that it's not just you guys, but it's also other people because they were invited and they decided to go ahead and go as a tribute to your pain and the loss of your children. But when, when I look at it that way, it's not that weird to me. Like, I would never want to be in that position. I could never put myself in that place to try to understand. But it's not that weird. At that point, it's not. So they had a prayer service and then a birthday party with the kids. And they had confetti, balloons, and silly string. And all of this was caught by the news. Which the news did not catch the prayer service. They just caught the confetti, the balloons, and the silly string. I'm just saying this again because this is a very important part of the but if you think about the balloons, they release balloons at the funeral. So it's not that weird to think that they would... They're the type of people who they'll do silly, what, what we would think is silly things during this time because it was their kids and it was just something that they, they're, they're, they loved that. To them, it makes sense. Moving on to kind of the investigation. The Rowlett Police Department basically had never had a crime like this. They were not prepared. They had no idea. The community was really pressuring them. And during this time, the family actually slept in a living room. They had a friend or a relative or someone who talked about what, how the sleeping arrangements later. And that they would basically, Darlie was super scared. She was terrified of, and, and just had gone through a trauma. So she, um, she would only sleep in rooms that didn't have windows. She was scared as an entry point. Um, she wanted everybody to sleep together, and when she would have to go to the bathroom, had to go somewhere, she wanted someone to go with her because she was too scared to go on her own, which to me sounds wrong. Oh. So a bit later, the police bring in the couple separately. The cops, now this this part, th- this is part of what got me so invested in this case, was when I heard things like this, and I saw things like this, and I was like, I'm sorry. What? <laughs> so, they took the father to so Darren out after the investigation in the back of the cop there, and they stopped at a place for cigars. And the police asked him to walk them through what happened again, and he did. And what he he walked them through everything that happened, like he had tried to once once Starley had called, and was screaming for him and screaming about the boys. He ran downstairs, he saw um, the older boy who at this point was still a- alive. He saw him on the ground and he started doing CPR. Now, I'm just gonna say this really quick. Whenever you see scenes like this, you need to, there's a shock factor that comes over you. And I'm gonna bring this up again at different points in, in the episode because I I think that people forget that because we haven't had this stuff happen to us, there's no shock um, value. Even during paranormal uh, experiences, when I've talked about them, I've said there's a shock value. There's a moment where I go, did this really happen? Is this really occurring? Like, I will deal with it in that, in that point in time, but then I have to have a second to to go through what's happening. I find it very strange for me personally that you would see, you would have left, mind you, in this whole thing, The infant child, Derek, is never brought up again. Not once. So Darren ran downstairs, left left the infant baby upstairs. Apparently they were sleeping together, so the baby's secure. Ran downstairs and then immediately starts doing CPR on his older son. Where's the shock value? Like, did he just go, did he just dive right into overdrive? And he was just like, okay, I need to do this. And then he starts doing CPR on his son. So that means he can clearly see his other son is dead. Like, you know what I mean? Like, there's no screaming. There's no, there's no, um, like, I think he would scream. I think he would react in some way where you would have a shock factor. And when he tells his side, he tells what happened in, in the story. Darley tells what happened in the story. Both of their accounts match up with what he does. The cops say that his account matches up as well, which is that he flew downstairs at Darley screaming and then started trying to do CPR compressions on their son. And while he was doing this, because there's so many wounds, blood is actually, this is going to get a little disgusting. I probably should have started that off when I said blood, but it is splurting out on him because there's so many wounds in his son's chest so i i can't imagine that scene to begin with but i also i've always had a problem with that scene because i'm like okay where's the shock factor like like your boys are wounded one's dead like when i don't get me like i am really lucky that when i'm in a situation i'm in it and I do not hesitate, and I have very good reflexes. But even that would make me go, oh, shit. And then I was, you know what I mean? Then I would start doing it. Not, he, when, when they talk about it, they don't talk about that. They don't talk about, like, he, They all they say is he flies downstairs and he starts doing it. Like, that's always weird for me. So the police go, good. And they agree. That's what happened. That's what the evidence showed. Um, And then they arrest Darlie. And they see she's the one who did it. And when the father comes back to the police station, Darren, um, he says that he saw them jumping up, slapping hands, lighting cigars, and celebrating that they arrested her. So not only are they doing all the celebration in front of him, which this is what pisses me off. They took him to the place to go buy the cigars to celebrate. So that means... Before he even sat down and they asked him to explain again what happened, they were already sure he didn't do it. Already. Already sure he didn't do it. So that means they had not fully listened to Darley's story yet. They had not fully heard his story. They were automatically sure he didn't do it. And that pisses me off. It pisses me off because isn't it like, It's supposed to be innocent until proven guilty, right? But in this entire case, apparently it was guilty until proven innocent. So why didn't he get that same exact treatment? Clearly he didn't. So, Chief Randall Rosie, the greatest man alive, I'm saying without tripping with sarcasm, says, and I quote, The crime scene tells a story, and it, it tells a hard story. And our thing is that that story is not entirely the same story she's telling. Well... Apparently, before you even knew that or not, your ass was too busy being outside buying fucking cigars with her husband. Like, what the fuck? No. So another quote from, and this is actually from the the ending of that episode, is it doesn't make any sense at all. 26-year-old woman, perfectly happy, no criminal record, no history of abuse, no history of any kind of psychotic disorder, nothing. Which is important. Because think about the motives of why someone murders someone. It's normally some sort of emotional thing, some sort of psychological thing, or some sort of spiritual thing, right? Like, those are the reasons in history people typically murder someone. So he's sitting here going, she's perfectly happy, takes away emotional, no criminal record, she's never done this before. No history of abuse, so she doesn't have any psychological trauma that he can think of that would that would explain her suddenly all of a sudden killing her kids for no reason her two kids not going it upstairs where her husband is and killing her three kids but killing her two kids all boys so you can't even make the like i even like was trying to sit there and i was like well maybe like you know maybe she had a girl and she just wanted a girl and boys and she was like you know what i'm done with boys you know what i mean like maybe she had a psychotic break in that way and she just said, like, these these things have wronged me, and so I'm only going to keep this one. But they're all boys. There's nothing to to defer between them. You know what I mean? Except for their ages. They're all your sons. You even name them all these. So when you look at your name, you're going to look at theirs. So the quote goes on to say, suddenly grabs a butcher knife and destroys her own children. And they're right. So the problem with this, though is this crime occurred one year after the Susan Smith crime, um, which is she had told police that some black man had hijacked her car and driven away with her kid, her children. She then confessed to murdering her two young boys. So this case was 11 months after it and was heavily compared to that case. Which that's also another thing, too, is like if you were going to kill your kids, right, you've got two boys. And this case is so strikingly similar to yours wouldn't you maybe wait a little longer? Like, not to be a dick, but, like, when when I get down to, like, why the police are saying she did this, you that would have to mean that she's incredibly smart, right? She's incredibly smart, and she did all this stuff, and, I mean, even to, if you're saying that, like, she did this, and that means that she didn't maybe fight someone off, so that means she would have to know exactly where to cut herself to not kill herself. Why would you wait for 11 months? Why wouldn't you come up with a better story about what happened to her kids? This guy, James Cron, who um, I personally think is a jackass, he had been to thousands of cases in his career, and so the Rowlett police force caught him. So this is, this is what starts to basically have them narrow down and go, Darley's someone who did it. He walks through the scene for about 20 to 30 minutes, and then he decided someone within the home did the crime. He, at this point... So he's only been there for 20, 30 minutes. He has not processed any of the evidence. He's not looked at everything. He's not interviewed Darley. He's not interviewed Darren. He has no idea whose blood was whose or where it came from. But he came to the conclusion that someone in that house did the crime. So the Rowlett Police Department called in their expert because they were like, I don't know what to do with this. And he was like, someone in the house did it. So they only have two people to focus in on. And apparently, like, and I'm not bashing guys or bashing police or anything like that, but... I almost feel like the police took Darren on, like, a bro trip to then go buy those cigars. And then said, yeah, 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 by the way, your wife did it. Sorry. And then celebrated in front of him. That's horrible. So the reason why they're coming up with this is because there's little blood that was on the couch. Darley said that when this person who came into her house and murdered her kids, tried to murder her, had, um, was found out, he basically ran through the kitchen, she heard broken glass, he went through the utility room and outside the garage. But underneath the glass is Starley's blood, which they were like, okay, well that's that would mean that she was cut before he before anyone knocked over the glass. So we're gonna leave that there for a second, we'll come back to it. Then they said that Starley stopped at the utility room, picked up the knife, then she called the police. However, so she was saying that the guy came out of the garage, which they did find that the, there's a screen that was in the window, um, window of the garage and it had been cut so someone could come in or come out. And they said there was dust on the window, which was undisturbed, and there's mulch on the flower bed, which had not been disturbed, which is right outside the window. Now, I saw the pictures of this, and that's not true. There's no mulch outside that window. None. There's concrete. Because if there is mulch, yes, I can agree with that slightly. If you've got a bed of mulch, it doesn't leave, it depends on how much mulch you have. If you've got a a full hill, it doesn't leave that much of a difference. If you have a bed, it gets a little bit of impressions. You'd have some breakage in in the mulch around a a general footprint size. I can understand that. But if there's concrete there, you're not going to have one unless the person had dirty, muddy, dirt-like shoes there's not even dirt there so there's not even like a he could attract tractor inside or out you know what i mean and she had kids so yeah and as far as the blood goes i mean if you think about like you're sitting there um i'm talking about the blood underneath the glass if you're sitting there and you're talking about sh- this guy ran out broke something and she was running after him like how close was she because her there's a comment in the show that they say when they picked her up she was covered in blood so she was covered in blood and she was like right hot on his tail and they were kicking around the glass it would make sense that it got underneath because the glass is the glass is moving it's a moving particle in this in this whole situation now what's very interesting though is 75 yards away There was an adult athletic sock that was found. And it had blood drops from both Devin and Damon. So if she did all this stuff, and she chased the guy out, and then she's like, oh my god, my kids. She calls the police, she's yelling for her husband to come down. And the other thing, too, is like... I mean, I guess it depends on how, like, well-insulated your house is, maybe. And, like, if you have a door open or not. But, like, if you heard broken glass... Technically, couldn't you have heard that from the second floor? So shouldn't you come down then? Maybe not when your wife is screaming bloody murder about her kids being dead. I don't know. So Doug Mulder was recommended to Darlene Darren to have as as their attorney. Um, he never thought she was guilty, and to the time of this interview, never still didn't. So the trial was moved to a place called Kerrville, Texas, which is a conservative town. The conviction rate is well above 95%. And it was moved there because of the publicity in Dallas. There's actually like a funny little quote where they said, if I ever get murdered, make sure the guy who kills me gets a trial in Kerrville, because then he'll he'll get convicted for sure. So it's really crappy that she ended up there, and I sort of feel like. The prosecution really played on that. So the child was five weeks long. There was multiple stab wounds on both boys, which I will say is strange. It's strange to me that there's multiple stab wounds on both boys, but on her, there's only slashes, slashes at her neck and slashes on her elbow. But I I maybe would also take into account, like, the size. So little boys aren't going to be able to kill you. You know what I mean? They're not really going to be able to attack you back. But the other thing, too, is, like, he didn't kill both boys at the same time. He had to have killed one boy, then killed the other, and stabbed Arlie, or stabbed Arlie, and then killed the two boys. So why weren't they screaming? Why was there no sound coming out of their mouth? Especially if one boy's sleeping on his stomach. Like, unless, and this is going to get slightly horrifying and way too much technical, but he had to have covered their mouths, or their nose somehow, or unless they were still sleeping. So, what if this goes back to the fact that Darley said she was disoriented? What if he put something on a towel, like chloroform or something, on all the boys, and they all ended up disoriented, didn't wake up right away, and so that's why if they did make a noise, no one heard that. Nobody could. So, Dr. Alex Santos, he called, he suddenly called the wounds on Darley superficial. Um, and that he just had to suture them up, which is really interesting to me because I, I found out from this, the show that superficial is a relative term, sort of like time or it's a relative term, right? The quickness or the slowness of time is a relative term. What, whether it is, has gone by quickly or not is up to you. So superficial is apparently up to the doctor in charge, but if you put her in ICU, it was, it was a serious slash, it was a, ser- a serious wound. And if it was two millimeters away from her carotid artery, and you were concerned, she she because she had lost so much blood, that's a serious wound. So okay, James Cron he testified uh, due to the lack of blood on the couch, the bloody fo- footprints again underneath the glass. He said there's no indication of anyone entering or exiting the window because of the non-disturbed dirt, and the supposed mulch bed underneath the window that clearly wasn't there. Um, he told the department to collect all the knives in the home, and there was a bread knife that was analyzed with fiberglass rods and a comp compound, and that's something that the screen was made of, but I'm sure there's plenty of other things that's made up of that. And, you know, what if they, like, what if he, someone, was like, oh, maybe I can do this myself, got some mesh material, tried to cut the screen, didn't do a good job, thought he washed it off, and then... Didn't wash it off well enough and so it was left on the knife. Who knows? I mean, really think about it when you like have a knife, like, don't uh, do you really think you get all of it off all the time? Like, knives end up with like little chips and crevices eventually and it doesn't all come out. So, the police believe that this knife was used to cut the screen. There were blood signs on the front and a blood stain on the back of Darley's shirt. Um, but the blood spatter expert Tom Bevel. He said that blood cast this, this was blood cast off from the stabbing. In his thought process and the way that he showed it, it had to be a very exaggerated like you forcefully brought the knife down, pulled it back and pulled it over your shoulder and brought it down again. I just did that motion with my shoulder, with my like I I did it the same way that he did it in the video. It hurts. Now, I happen to be one of those people who carry all the stress on my shoulder. And as I said, I haven't been sleeping. So it's my, my body is sore. So, but it hurts. I couldn't imagine doing that, you know, four or five, six times. I couldn't do that. Even doing it right now, it was annoying. Not to mention, like, the actual what you're doing. That's a lot. Um, it's uncomfortable. So, however, after this trial, several of his testimonies have come to be looked at as unreliable. Which, I mean, most of the time when that happens and part of the case was won on that testimony, like, you get a retrial or an appeal or something. So Charles Hamilton, which was a fingerprint expert who examined the scene, said that the only prints found belonged to Darlie and her children. Which makes no sense. Because why was Darren not a part of that equation? He was clearly doing CPR on his son, which means that you would have found his fingerprints on his son. You'd have found the fingerprints around the whole crime scene. So it can't just be Darlie and her children. There's Darren, too. Um, the lab tests did find fingerprints on the garage window that did not belong to the Routier family. And so her husband and, apparently, law enforcement uh, are unclear. They don't. They have no idea who left them. Not a single clue. They have no idea who left them. There's been a huge debate about a bloody fingerprint that was found on the coffee table near her son's body. And again, they, so some people thought it belonged maybe to a child. So her original story that her son woke her up and she was disoriented, like he could have, you know, put his hand down. But there are other people who said, no, it is consistent with the size of an adult fingerprint. Um, and part of her appeal is centered on that print. Belonging to an adult. So, you know, it could, we don't know what it could be. However, the print was never compared to the children's fingers because some more workers did not take the children's prints, which normally they would have. So, you know, everybody was just doing their job expertly, like a pro. So, I actually found this tidbit of information from the Thoughtful Co. website and I had never heard this person's name come up in this case at all, so I'm not sure if it's actually part of the case or if someone if someone just looked at it and they found out and they included it. I don't know where this person came from. But um there's a special agent from the FBI, Al Brantley, who testified that the window screen that was cut could have been could have merely been removed by an intruder. Uh also that Darley's expensive jewelry had been untouched. Uh, so it couldn't have been a robbery. And then they said that the motive could have been rape because then why would hurt? Why would he kill the, the children instead of using the children to be leverage? Um, and then they also talked about how horribly the boys were stabbed. And they said that it should have been if that was the case, it was a personal attack done with extreme anger, not by a stranger, which I, I can agree. That's about the only part I can agree of with of that statement, because I don't think. That anyone who came in there did it for robbery. Let's be honest. Typically, robberies don't occur during... It was after 12 o'clock. Like, at night. I'm talking about midnight. Like, no one robs the house then unless they're not just looking to rob you. Like, that's a common thought. So... Thanks for the, like, obvious knowledge, dude. And then, I don't think the motive would have been rape at all. Because... I do agree that, that someone would have probably just used them as leverage or tied them up and moved them somewhere else. And if that was the case, and they knew the family, and thought the husband was there, they probably would have killed the husband instead. Um And then I I will say that it does sound like it was some something of anger. Like either someone was angry or they just wanted to kill someone, and so they, they said, Okay, well I'll just take I'll just try to kill this family. So As far as the sock goes, which to me was the most damning evidence about this whole case before I found out all, like, the little bits and pieces. Because, like, why would you leave the sock so far away? Like, you know, if you're going to stage a crime scene, wouldn't you fix up the inside of the house, not the outside? There was also, in the same Thoughtful Co article, they said something about a vacuum cleaner, and they said the vacuum cleaner had blood on it so that it had to have been put there after not before so i'm not really i'm going to be honest i'm not entirely sure how much i um agree with this article because that doesn't make sense it would make more sense like like things get like if you have blood splatter coming out everywhere it would make more sense it came out from there not from not because someone touched it afterwards especially if they're trying to clean up a crime scene and they have half a mind I would think they'd try to wash their hands. There's even a part of the article that says something about someone clearly washed up blood in the sink. Again, this is something else that I couldn't find anywhere in any article or the show. And I would think that if these things did happen, that they would, um, would have been in the show. I mean... If you think about it, like, those would be... Cl- if you're saying someone tried to clean up the crime, like, that's a clear indication that, yeah, somebody in the fucking house did it. But, because, I mean, how would you know where the vacuum is unless it was already there? And, and so you would have to know. And so I just found, like, those little parts a little weird. We're gonna kind of say that they're not maybe part of this case. But, I mean, they are on the article, so who knows? Maybe they are. But the prosecution believed that Darley left a sock there, which I don't agree with for reasons I said earlier um and so the surgeon when he had to go in and bring Darlene to surgery there were several small branches of the jugular vein that were cut so he had to go in there and basically tie those veins together so that she wouldn't bleed to death that's a serious thing like it's serious like I remember um I got a dog bite on the inside of my thigh one day um And it was right, uh, right at the base of my knee. I was playing with this kid and there was a dog outside and we were chasing each other around because he, he asked me to play the game and I said, okay, We was chasing each other around. And then the dog, like, I thought the dog was on a leash. It was not on a leash. So the dog saw us playing and started running after us. So he was on a scooter and I was running and I was keeping up with him, but he was starting to freak out. So I literally like basically picked him up through in the house and I didn't even know that I had been bit. I was just like, okay, cool. Like we got away. Like everything's fine. And I sat down on the chair and felt like this wetness behind my knee, picked it up and saw it was like blood covered in blood. The dog missed my, my vein there uh by a couple millimeters. And if it would have gotten me, I would have bled to death. So, when I went to the doctor, I didn't get stitches. He um I got I had to get a shot for rabies and so on and so forth. They basically just bandaged it up and told me I wouldn't need stitches and it was fine. And it was really interesting because I remember one doctor said it was serious, another doctor said it wasn't. But I remember also feeling like the, the doctor who said it wasn't did it more for my benefit, so I wouldn't freak out, or my mom wouldn't freak out, because I, I still have the scar there to this day. But if something is could make you bleed to death, it's kind of serious. Just saying. So there were also Darlie believes that she would have died; they would have arrested her husband, and um, I uh, I agree with that. I mean, I still question some of. The stuff with him just because I feel like I feel like they never really gave her a good trial or never really honestly looked into the case with her to look at all the similarities and look at all the differences and honestly just really analyze the whole thing so like we talked about with the mulch there is no mulch there and um they actually go on to show that in the episode the window is maybe nine or ten inches from the ground you could very clearly step into the house or outside of the house without touching the windowsill or disturbing the dirt so duck actually hired his own blood splatter experts which they did agree that if the stabbing motion was exaggerated like tom Bevel was talking about that yeah sure she could get blood on the back of her shirt but if you're stabbing like a normal person would you know think about when you're cutting something you're hammering something whatever you don't you don't like rotate your hand all the way back into like this painful position just to hammer and nail it. No. You do it in a way that's not going to tire your arm out. So, why would she do it in an over-exaggerated function there, either? Um. Additionally, one drop of blood in the back isn't enough to have a blood pattern. And she did say that her son came to her to wake her up. Maybe he left it. You know? And if he did, like, let's say she was sleeping on her side and he left it, like, wouldn't that explain, you know some of the the lack of blood on the couch and where it's just a, maybe some droplets instead of you're thinking a pool of blood. So basically just analytically, it's not helpful. And you can't really like sit there and be like, oh yeah, she killed her sons because it's an over-exaggerated motion and you found a piece of a drop of blood on the back of her shirt. Um Bevel also said he didn't remember taking any notes And was told a report wouldn't be necessary by Mr. Davis, which I have no idea who Mr. Davis is. But here's the thing. When he wrote a book, and in his book he said that you should always make a report. So, why didn't you? Even if someone told you not to, why would you, like, again, why weren't the children's fingerprints taken? Why would you not do a report? Like, is this whole fucking apartment just bullshit? Like, that doesn't make any sense. Also, the crime scene was a mess. So, you know, in my earlier suggestion of why perhaps she, her blood ended up underneath the glasses, maybe she was right on his heels. Maybe, you know, maybe she tripped over it when she was coming in or out. You don't know. But it was also a mess. When the paramedics got there, they were there to try to save people's lives. At that point, evidence is irrelevant. And that's talked about in a lot of true crime cases and on ID all the time, where the paramedics have to come in to try to take, try to get the, get the people. They don't have time for you to sit there and take pictures of all this stuff. They don't have time. They, every moment, every second matters. So there are tons, like none of, all of this is circumstantial evidence, really. There's no, there's nothing else that they really have. Um, and there's also actually, there was a theory about the butcher block and the knives and why they might have the compound on them. I'm not entirely sure that I think this is the actual reason, but it does make sense. i will go into that in a second. So when they dusted the window for prints, that's how they found out there was a print there. They dusted the butcher block, right? We don't know what order they did that in. So if they would have dusted the screen along the headings of the spring, and we've already noticed that this department doesn't seem to know what they're doing, they could have then turned around, dusted knives, and then gotten it on a particular knife. Now, The reason why I have an issue with this sort of thought process is because it's also sort of weird that they would only get it on one knife, not multiple knives. And additionally, who takes a fucking bread knife to cut, like, a screen? Like, that's a sawing motion. There's better tools. So I don't know. However, during the case, Doug Mulder didn't call these people. He didn't call them to testify. They They were ready to testify. He never called them. Now, there was a responding officer... Who I think was a dirk. Um, I think I feel like a lot of the people in this just didn't... They looked at it from their point of views and didn't look at it from what might have happened. Again, I'm not sure if I believe Darley did or she didn't do it. I, I do think she's guilty of something, I'm not going to lie. I do feel like she's guilty. I don't know if it may be in how she dealt with the case or her explanations or... Maybe not remembering things the best or not being consistent with her story. Or maybe she was involved with someone who did the case. Who knows? But I don't think, I don't think she murdered her sons in the fact of she's the one who stabbed them. I do think she's guilty somehow. Like maybe she knew the person, maybe they threatened, you know, and she just never thought about it. I do think she's guilty somehow, but I don't think she murdered her kids. Not really. So, uh, my my biggest harp on this whole entire case is the fact that I don't think she got a fair trial. And I, whether you're guilty or not guilty, you deserve a fair trial. And that's where I have a problem with this. So, David Waddell, which was the responding officer, he said there was, when he came, he said there was blood on the ground and the couch. He could see Darlene in the back of the house talking the phone. One of the boys was on the ground with his eyes open, so that would be the son that was still alive. Um, he was trying to breathe, but he couldn't. The officer told Darley to help him to go get towels, but she wouldn't. And he says she never tried to save him. And Darley's like, look, dude, I had gotten all the towels before you got there because her husband's already trying to save her kid, which if he's sputtering blood all over the place, like, I do think like it would make, s- I-, I think that you would say, I need to go get towels. I need to go get k- towels. He needs, he needs something to keep the blood inside of him. That to me, that's, that's a conscious thought. So, and, and, you know, Darren's point was, why didn't the trained officer try to help? Why is he, like, sitting there marching orders to someone else? He's a trained fucking officer. Wouldn't he know what best to do? And he, even at a point in the conversation, tells her to sit down. Like, what? When what happened to my, like, when someone broke in my house, they told me to leave the house. I had to stay outside and I was not allowed to go back inside until they were done looking at everything. They didn't tell me to sit down. Something that I did find out, though, and Darren, apparently, he said that he was yelling at the officer to help him give give his son CPR and that the officer never moved. He had, like, a, de- a deer in headlights look and he was in shock, which this is also my point of why I'm like, well, why wasn't Darren in shock when he first came down? Because this trained officer, he's supposed to know, like, you may walk into these things once in a while, you know what I mean? As This is like, you're going to be your first time seeing it. Why was he more in shock than Darren was? Um, but I did find out that apparently the night crew is the youngest most, inexperienced, youngest, most inexperienced officers on duty. So I can understand that. But still, like, he should have done something. Now, this guy actually later on goes to say, because Darley starts talking, um, and we're just going to lump these two sort of facts together. The prosecution tries to harp on Darley that she was more... Uh, concerned about the crime than her children that I want to call. Like she does mention a couple times, Oh my God, the knife, I touched the knife. What if I ruin the fingerprints, stuff like that, which is a hard thought to think about. It's a hard thought to think about. And she, but there's numerous times, like when they're playing the, the tape, there's numerous times where she goes, my children are dead. She seems, even though her husband is sitting here and giving her, their son CPR, she thinks he's dead. She seems to think he's dead. But she constantly, she never just goes, my child is dead. She always says, my children is dead. How could they do this to them? Why did you take my children? She always thinks they're dead. So at that point, fuck yeah, I'm going to be sitting around and listening off all my shit because I want to make sure that you're going to get this person. I'm going to make sure that you're not going to find any way to let this bastard go free. When the guy broke into my house, and I keep referring to this because this is the one and only situation I've had with with police and had to go through this. And the first thing, they didn't ask me, am I okay? Because when I was on the phone with the dispatcher, she asked me if I was okay. They didn't ask me if I was okay. They didn't ask me if I was hurt. The officer who walked up to me, he looked at me like immediately he didn't believe me. Immediately. He just gave me this look like he didn't believe me. Then he goes in his car, takes out a pad of paper, and it's a, it's a form, and he goes, and he should to fill out this form. And he had me fill out the form. Then as I was filling it out, he asked me maybe a couple questions. He said, okay. I st- he said, okay. And he said, all right, keep filling out the form. I'll be right back. Then that's when he went in the house. So there was a good maybe two to three minutes where he wasn't looking for the person. He wasn't. He didn't believe me. Not right away, no. So I had to sit there and recount all these things while I was in, I was, when, when what happened happened, I remember there was a moment of shock. There was a moment where I looked at this person and I was like, I felt like I was dreaming. I was like, is someone, someone's seriously in my house? And then there was this just overwhelming, you could call it like fight or flight that came over me and was like, fight now. And that's when I chased him out of the house. And if it wasn't for that, I don't know. I would have just stood there in shock because he looked at me in shock because he wasn't expecting anybody to be home. And um, so I chased him out, and and I had that shock. And when I called, when I had to call the police and be like, I need to report a crime, I, f- I can't even tell you guys how that made me feel. And then I had to call my parents and tell them what happened. And I had to call my husband and tell him what happened. And every time I told that story over and over, I felt so horrible for the fact that I let this happen, that someone, that to me, I let someone come in my house. Because in a short fact of what happened was someone knocked on the door and I thought maybe it's UPS, but I wasn't expecting a package. But the UPS guy was always very nice enough that he would knock very loudly on the door and then he'd go about his business. And something told me you need to say something. I said, no. No. I don't, I don't, I'm in the bathroom. I can't get up to, you know, go talk to anybody right now. And I had that nagging sensation and I never said a word. And then they walked around to the back of the house and got in that way. And I heard them. I heard them. I heard them break in my house and I had to get up. And when I walked out, they were walking into my bedroom. So I felt like I let this person come into my house because I never said one second, one minute, sorry I can't come to the door right now. I never said anything. And that's not true. Yeah, okay, I didn't say anything. But, you know, the other reason why I didn't say anything was because I was singing. I was playing music. I was singing. I was having a grand old time. I don't understand how, and I was playing a game. I don't understand how this person somehow didn't know someone was in the house. To me, those were more than enough things that you would have known, you would have heard me before you knocked on the door. So apparently, he just didn't hear me. But that was part of why I was like, I'm not going to say anything because then they're going to think, like, oh, you know, I'm going to come to the door and I don't want to be bothered. I just want to be left alone. So I just, I don't know. It's like they're removing the shock factor, it's like they're removing the, the time for you to go into this place where you're scared. And instead so they're they're trying to say, okay, well, no, you need to do this and you need to do that. And you have to have a moment where you need to process your emotions. It's like they didn't let you they don't let me do that. It was like they didn't let her do that. And the thing on this too, to circle back around to why I even got into this, is they're saying that she's talking about the knife and fingerprints and all this stuff, but they never say someone asked her. And the dispatcher does say something about make sure you don't touch anything. Which is why Darley says, oh my god, I touched the knife. Like, I messed this up. So that's why she starts talking about it. And then, additionally, Mr. Waddell, when he showed up, he didn't tell the dispatcher he was there. He never He never told the dispatcher she, he was there. So he starts talking to Darlie, telling her to do stuff. The dispatcher's telling her to do other stuff, not touch anything, not go get anything, just... Not to do stuff. This guy's telling her she needs to go do these things. She needs to go do the others. She needs to sit down. And she's sitting there and she's trying to talk to three people her husband, this cop who'd never identified himself, and the dispatcher. So she even tells her son, hold on, like when I guess she finally realizes, like she gets a little out of her shock and realizes, like, her son is still alive. That's why his father is still doing CPR and, you know, intermittently and trying to help her son breathe. She tells him, hold on, honey, hold on. And I quoted that because one of the things that's very important about this case is they prey on the fact that they say, Darlene never responded correctly. She never grieved correctly. She never responded about her kids' murders correctly. She didn't respond correctly on the phone call. Hold on, honey, hold on is what you would tell anyone if you think you're about to die. That's what you tells someone. I'm sorry, but that's, that's being normal, in my opinion. So... Another thing they brought up is that there was an entry in Darley's diary a little over a month before the murders where she basically said she was contemplating suicide. And the prosecution's argument is they know parents normally don't com- uh, contemplate killing their children, but mothers normally don't contemplate suicide. That is a quote from the prosecution. So you are comparing suicide to murdering someone. That is a very big jump. Because when you're contemplating suicide, you don't try to take other people with you. Unless you took drugs, or your morals or your values get twisted and turned, typically, when you think about suicide, it's because you don't think that you need to be a part of this world. You think you're a waste of space. So if you think that if your self-worth is that low, that you're that depressed, that you think you're that horrible of a person, why would you then try to bring other people with you? That doesn't make any sense. And she didn't bring herself with her, with them so then how do you then decide okay no no no. i was thinking about suicide but i changed my mind i just want to do murder and oh i want to survive it and act like like that's a that's a big jump it's huge jumps especially a month before and it turns out darlie had postpartum depression at that time her son i think had only been um essentially born for a month or so or no no eight months so she was just having postpartum depression And after she, she needed to write down the thoughts. And after she did, she talked to her husband and they figured it out. And then she wrote another entry in that same diary and said, look, I want to see my children grow up. Like, I can't have these thoughts because I want to see them grow up. I want to see them succeed. Like, I want them to have a good night. So going back to when the nurses were saying that Darlie wasn't grieving appropriately, they say that in their testimony. But what they wrote in their notes is completely different. There's actually a quote and they said that she's described as very emotional, crying, sobbing, and talking about events in her family. But then on, on the stand, numerous nurses, numerous, oops, numerous nurses called her whiny. Which has a... That's not, what, that's not what a medical staff member or practitioner would ever call their patient. They wouldn't call them whiny. They are there to take care of them. Like, that would mean that you have horrible bedside manner. And if it's in that many nurses, that's very strange. So it turns out that in cross-testimony, one of the nurses admitted that they met with the prosecution. And during, the pro- during that meeting, the prosecution sh- showed the nurses and doctors pictures of the boys while they were stabbed to death. So they didn't say much, they just showed them pictures. And then everybody left. And psychologically... That's a problem because it's the same thing as, as we're listening to the stories and we watch TV and we, we want the person to be caught. We want them to, we want someone to be punished for the crime. Ideally, we want the right person, but it's very easy to think someone's the right person or the wrong person unless you have all the facts. In this case, they don't have all the facts. So, the person on trial is Darley. You have people telling you, she's the one who did it. You want- you want justice for those kids. So yeah, you're gonna try. And that's proven in numerous cases. That's why they're not supposed to do it. Then, the- the prosecution, honestly, in my- I think they were just, like, pulling at straws. So first they said maybe it was a burglary, but nothing was taken. Then they said that it was- it was due to finances, because the Routiers were in debt and they owed some taxes. Um, they painted, they really harped on Darlie's appearance. They painted her to be materialistic. They said that she was using every dime that the the family was making. They said that because she got big breasts, she got a a boob job after she had her second baby. And they were saying that because she did that, she was materialistic and she just wanted to be the center of attention. Um... And they found out, Officer Maine found out, that each boy was insured for $5,000. And the Routiers who tried to get a loan for $5,000 from the bank, but were turned down. So what was, this is one of the moments in this documentary, or this, this series. This is one of the moments in the series where it's clear that they're being judgmental. Because when they're saying they're talking about, oh, well, they took out a life insurance policy for $5,000 on each boy, the guy behind the camera goes, um, do you know how much the funeral costs? And the prosecution's face freezes, shakes his head, and he goes, uh, I, I don't remember. I can't recall right now. I don't know. And then he responded back with, it was somewhere in between ten dollars to $12,000. The prosecution takes a second, and then they just start harping on another reason why Darley killed the boys. Yeah, you've got nothing, dude. I'm sorry. At that point, you've got nothing. He literally just called you out on your shit. Because tons of parents do that. Tons of parents take out life insurance policies on their children in the case that they die. Not because they want money, but to make sure that they can provide a proper funeral for them. That's all they did. So it's not like they got extra money. They really lost money on the poor murder of their children. So they brought up the, um, I had mentioned that they had a birthday party and that this was a huge problem. Because they, they brought up what they called the infamous silly string video and during this birthday party they played gangster's paradise and they said that the the fu- they said that this was a very inappropriate song to play at a funeral um but the parents said that was the boy's favorite song so they played it they said they used to dance around and sing anytime it came on and so they played it so they actually talked about that the types of songs you play during the funeral the color of your hair your skin how you dress, whether it's revealing or not, your makeup, your emotions, your choices when you make grieving, they're all scrutinized during a trial. All of it. And they tore Darlie's character apart. Um, and actually, when the they brought up the Silly String video in court, Detective Patterson, which was one of the lead detectives, was called to the stand to talk about the Silly String video, and he pled the fifth. The reason why he pled the 5th is because the police mic'd the grave sites on the day of the memorial service. So they knew she had had a prayer service before the birthday party. It's taped. But Doug Mulder didn't put this on, he he didn't bring this to to the jury. So the jury didn't know. They had no idea. So they, it, for me, like, I don't think Doug Mulder, I think he got recommended because he was one of, like, the highest attorneys of time, and he had, like, a good reputation. But honestly, I think he flopped on this case. He really did. So one of the things that it really amused me was towards the end of this um, trial and the closing arguments, the guy was talking about that basically if Darley gets free, she's just going to do this again, and that she's a horrible mother and a murderer. She called him a liar. <laughs> And he was, he took that as, well, that just means I'm getting to her. And I'm like, no, like this whole time you guys ripped her to shreds. I'm sorry. When someone, someone abuses and like curses your character, right. And your personality on top of the trauma you just had, there's a moment where you either continue to like back off or you fight. And I think she just turned around and was like, you're not going to fucking call me that again. So she just called him a liar. And this was a very fast case. So I didn't really think this was fast, but, like, I've looked at, like, other cases and been following other cases, and it's actually seemed to be very fast. So from the date of the murder to the date of conviction was eight months. Darlie was convicted of only one murder because the prosecutors decided to ensure that if she wasn't convicted for this, she could be convicted for the other murder. Just to make sure she was convicted for something. Um... And she was the first woman placed on death row in Texas in two years. What is interesting, uh, and also about the trial, all 12 jurors agreed that she should get the death row penalty. All 12 of them. However, her husband still believes that she's innocent. Her sister was hysterical and her mother was beyond fucking pissed. And Charlie, as she was being carried away, said, I didn't murder my children. Now, in Illinois, a woman had a very similar experience to this. She struggled with an intruder who killed her ten-year-old boy. Years later, a man confessed to that crime, and before that, the woman was sentenced to jail. Like she was put in jail, and this this man eventually came forward and was like, "Yeah, sorry guys, I'm the one who did it." And so they had a little route. And another point that also was not brought up in the trial at all, which should have been. Because this is a huge, huge key point of, of this whole thing. And it really blows the whole case wide open. Seven to eight days before the murder, there was a black car. And it seemed to be fascinated with the Routier house. Um, a neighbor watched the car. They had, had, they had turned into the driveway um, and was staring out at the Routier's house and just watching it. And so the neighbor started to walk towards the car, but then the car pulled out abruptly and, and took off. Several witnesses actually said they saw this person watching the house. And on the day of the murder, the person was spotted again between 1230 and 130 in the afternoon. Which sounds like he was sort of casing the house. And if so many people saw him, why did no, why, why did no one call the cops? Well, it turns out people did. The cops didn't seem to follow up on it. There's no record in the in the um, information at all, in the evidence, in the court documents, no record of this car ever being brought up. And so they actually, because of this, the bloody print, several other things that clearly were not done correctly in the case, a motion of discovery was filed in order to have everything compared. And the, the judge granted the motion, but the state was opposed to it. Darley's lawyer, Doug Mulder, He continued to work on the case. He's been working on the case for 19 years now. 15 of it without getting paid a single dime. James Cron, when he was interviewed, he said that after all of this, he said he didn't convict her. What convicted her was the nine hours of evidence found there when the police were there. Which, nine hours doesn't seem like a long time to me. I mean, maybe that's routine, but, I mean, think about how long you work at your office. That's nine hours. It seems long when you're doing your job, sure. But if you were just sent there to find small bits of information, how do you know that you got everything? So for the police planting the hidden microphones, they were not charged. Um, there were no federal charges against them. So then the court reporter in this case, there's actually a complaint filed against her because she uh, apparently made several mistakes in the document. She was ordered to pay $32,265 to get the transcript fixed. She had her license revoked. The second court reporter who went through everything said that the first version contained 18,000 errors, and it was 53 pages of... She had to make a new version of it for 53 pages of the transcript, Um, and she also had to talk about the issues of preliminary jury selection using stenographic notes instead of audio recordings... And there, there, so there, were, there was a lot of, it wasn't just like the police that seemed to fuck this up. <laughs> it's basically what I'm saying. Finally, in 1999, a judge approved the revised transcript and Routier's team filed an appeal in 2001, but in 2003, the court rejected it and upheld her conviction. So to basically tidy this all up, we've got questions. And the questions are, okay, the bloody footprint. I'm sorry, the bloody fingerprint. Who does it belong to? Um, there was another fingerprint on the garage. Who does it belong to? Darren Retier's jeans had blood on them. Whose blood is it now? Again, his shed was apparently spurting out blood, but it's kind of strange that it would land on your jeans, depending on where you're crowded over your child. I mean, I would think that if it's spurting out blood, it would be up, not down. So if you are, you know, tucked with your knees underneath you, over your child trying to do CPR, as typically we see in the movies, and how you're taught to do CPR when you get the certificate training for it. It's weird that it would land on your thighs. It should land on your shirt. There's a pubic hair that was found in the living room. Who does it belong to? The police, those, those debris that were on the knife in the kitchen, Um, didn't really come from the screen door. I mean, we had better analytical stuff down than we did before. So, I mean, they could really come through without a shadow of doubt and say, yeah, it does, or maybe it could belong to anything. The screen that was investigated, they originally said that it was cut from the inside and that was part of their, well, yeah, like the Routiers did it. That's actually incorrect. And it was proven it was cut from the outside, which I mean, sure, if you're going to say that they could have covered up the crime, they could have very clearly taken a knife, run outside, cut it, and then run back in. Um, also the thing too, I just, I just now thought about it is when you slide a knife into a knife block, typically you hit the knife block, which means that the fibers found on the knife, if the knife was put in the knife block immediately after, you know, not washed, not something like that should have been on the butcher block as well, but they don't ever say that it was on the butcher block or any other knives. They only say it was on that one. So that would mean either the knife was never put back in the butcher block, which from reading, we know it was, or that there was a period of time between once this, this thing was cut with the bread knife and when it was then washed and put into the butcher block, or they did not dust the butcher block appropriately to try and see the there. When the paramedics arrived, they said that Darren Routier was outside, but that's impossible because Darren Routier was inside. Still trying to make sure his child was alive. So who is the person outside? Nobody ever knows. Was the testimony from the nurses, was it coached or scripted or rehearsed somehow? Because, again, they use that word whiny. You would never use that to talk about your patient ever. One thing I actually found out, which I didn't know, is Darley is wearing a necklace that name. So when her carotid artery was close to being cut, that knife actually hit her necklace and damaged it and because it damaged it it actually blocked the knife from going deeper into her neck and there the question is did the jury know about it because i fucking didn't i didn't even hear about it in the damn the actual case on on investigation discovery i didn't know she was wearing a necklace at all the prosecution also apparently refused to provide access to their evidence Questions like why, like why, why wouldn't you like sure that after the case is done, especially now with like DNA testing, why are they, why is everybody being so reluctant to like look back into this case and go, okay, well, did we really get the right person? And there's been writers who have tried to help Darlie fight to get a new trial, and they end up being blocked, not by her, but their visit will be blocked, and they'll they'll have a very difficult time trying to get what they're trying to do accomplished so that's the case of Darley with i don't really know i don't know guys but the one thing i do know is that she deserved to have a a correct honest fair trial and only at that point circumstantially or not could you sit down and say yes she did or she didn't if if we can see all these errors and these these quote-unquote facts that were presented in the case as truly happening and true evidence why wasn't the jury the jury wasn't made uh, wasn't made aware of most of these things they had no idea no idea i mean the blood spatter experts weren't called they didn't know anything about the fingerprint they didn't like they didn't know so i mean yeah okay i can kind of guess where you would you would say she was guilty because they weren't presented all the facts i mean that alone should show that her lawyer was incompetent isn't that was why Anand Syed was able to? They were able to finally get um a, another trial and a, uh, try to do an appeal with him because to see if his lawyer was competent or not. So clearly hers was not. I mean, he may have won tons of cases before, but obviously at that point he needed to take some time off, and he actually did. He took time off. He took a quite a few years off from of being a lawyer because of this case. It it hurt him so badly, and I think that's. I think that goes to show that he blamed himself for it as well and the fact that he's been working on it pro bono too that shows that he he did blame himself a lot so that's all i've got for you guys today i hope you like it you know take care of yourself stay safe and we will be back with a new episode next month it'll probably be shorter especially uh if i'm not feeling well by then i'll probably be a little bit shorter but yeah take care guys and remember don't let the ghost get you bye